0: So this text comes to us as part of Jesus's journey up to Jerusalem. He has stopped in a small town, we aren't told exactly where, and he has just left a very contentious dinner uh, with Pharisees and lawyers, which sounds like my personal nightmare, but I'm sure he was fine. Uh, and he accuses them of hypocrisy and uncovers their hidden motives and insults them and they're accosted by a crowd of thousands. And they're eager to see what this controversial teacher is all about. They're pushing in on each other, trampling each other, the text says, to get close and hear what he has to say. Jesus, however, turns to speak to his disciples. So he's standing on the steps, huge crowd in front of him, and he's talking just to his disciples. And I can just imagine this crowd growing more restless People shouting out to Jesus, asking him questions, trying to get his attention. They're impatient for teaching and truth. Maybe they're just wanting to get in on the drama. Stressful situation, to say the least, but Jesus remains calm, measuring his words and picking his audience very carefully. One guy wants Jesus to uh, solve a problem for him. So he calls out to him from the crowd and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And Jesus, for some reason, picks out this interruption from all of them and decides to answer Friend, who set me up to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he says to the crowd, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he tells them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will pull down all of my barns and I will build larger ones. And I, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods for the rest of your life. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. This is not exactly the answer the guy hoped for, right? He wants an easy win. He wants someone with authority to tell his brother to just share the money so he'd have more, so his life would be easier. And Jesus does have that authority. Scripture elsewhere tells us that he is judge and arbitrator, His rhetorical question, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you, is not undermining his own authority. It reads to me instead like a bit of a dig at the man's passivity and a hint that, should Jesus choose to be judge over him, the man probably wouldn't like the verdict that he passes down. On some level though, to us, to our modern sensibilities, this man's request feels kind of reasonable right we assume reading this that he hasn't received any of the inheritance and that feels unfair but then why would jesus reprimand his greed is he wrong for just wanting it that he didn't receive any wouldn't it be more just and fair to split it equally why isn't this man right So these questions sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole about inheritance law, which sounds really boring, but I promise it's interesting. (laughs) We make the assumption that the man did not receive anything because our framework for historical inheritance is something called primogeniture. Primogeniture refers to the right of the firstborn, usually male, child to inherit the parent's whole estate, all assets and often their reputation. This is what we see in the story of Jacob and Esau, when Esau gives up his birthright to Jacob in exchange for some food. And most historical monarchies also ran on primogeniture, keeping the things in the family. And primogeniture notably also fueled the inequalities of the feudal system in Europe in the Middle Ages, because it consolidated wealth in the hands of the few and kept it in the hands of a few of their children. But here's the interesting part. Primogeniture was actually not the main practice or the main expectation for inheritance in the ancient world. In Jesus' time, Roman law made no distinction between the oldest or youngest, male or female, if the parent died without a will. The parent could designate one successor to receive it all, but otherwise the estate would just be divided up. And the Bible is even more direct... (laughs) about setting up a non-primogeniture inheritance system, and it does it way earlier than the Romans. In Deuteronomy, the law specifies that the oldest son should receive a double portion of the inheritance, but that a portion is reserved also for every other son. If there are no sons, daughters can inherit. So think prodigal son, who was the youngest and demanded his share of the inheritance early and received it. Biblically, in a family like that with two sons, the first, firstborn would receive two-thirds and the second one-third. And this may sound unfair, but the eldest usually shouldered more responsibility for the family, was expected to take care of his mother and any sisters until they married. So in this way, it's quite reasonable. And it's even more fair when you think generationally. Over time, large estates get divided up the wealth is spread out, and future generations must go back to work to stay wealthy, financially secure. It gives them both a leg up and an incentive to be productive on their own, building wealth and a legacy that they can then pass on to their own families. So that's the rabbit hole, and this is why it's important. It tells us that the man who asked this question, likely a younger son, probably received his portion of the inheritance already, but he wanted more. He wanted enough that he could put his feet up for the rest of his life, like the rich fool in the parable. His request to Jesus was fundamentally self-serving, fueled by greed, and Jesus calls it out. The parable uncovers his intent and reveals some of his character. So the rich man, in the parable, gains his wealth seemingly by chance. His land produced abundantly. And this is a passive construction of the phrase that suggests that it was not by the sweat of his own brow that he was wealthy and then became more so. But even if he had worked hard for all that he had, it's what he does with that wealth that God criticizes. He works hard to keep all of his possessions for himself, and says to his soul, his very inner being, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. It is telling that the primary dialogue in this parable is the man with himself. God comes in later and delivers a judgment, but the man consults no other person, thinks of no other person, apparently has no community, and does not think of God either as he makes his plans. So he has no one to inherit any of the things that he leaves behind. And those things left behind, if he could not keep them after all of that effort, whose were they really? The passage begs that question, and I think we're supposed to ask it, and then come to the conclusion that everything we have does belong to God. It is lent to us to steward well. But the rich fool does not. And we learn from him that greed, any self-serving impulse, really, makes our worlds small, makes our hearts small, freezes us out from community and connection. But the man doesn't see that. He wants to eat, drink, and be merry. And this phrase is taken from Ecclesiastes, which says that enjoyment is good. It is good. There is nothing better for people under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. The important piece of this reference though, and the reason I think it's in there, is the second half of the Ecclesiastes verse. Eat, drink, and be merry, and then the second half. For this joy will go with them in their toil through the days of the life that God gives them under the sun. We are not meant to gather wealth, to hoard it for ourselves, and then put our feet up for the rest of our days. We are meant to participate in the world productively, creatively, selflessly, for the sake of the generations to follow and for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is what it means to be rich towards God. So remember, Jesus chooses his audience carefully. The parable is spoken specifically to the crowd not to the disciples, necessarily, who he was talking with exclusively just before, and not only to the man who asked the question, but to the crowd at large, these thousands of people who have gathered from all walks of life for all sorts of reasons. And to those in the crowd who have ears to hear, Jesus is saying this, do not be self-serving, concerned only for your own future and security, it will get you nowhere. Here's a better way. Open your eyes to the provision of God in your life and understand why God provides. God is a good father and there is an inheritance ready for all of God's children. Open your eyes to the inheritance that is available to you by the grace of God Recognize the treasure that is yours, child of God. Come join this family I have created, this kingdom of God. This is the message, the invitation that Jesus extends to the crowd, to those who are listening, and that Jesus extends on the cross to the world, to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, to each of us. And then he turns back to the disciples. After telling this parable, he's talking to this group of faithful followers who have heard his message and believed it. They have recognized the inheritance offered to them and they have received it. And Jesus tells them to trust it, saying this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to your span of life? If you are not able to do a small thing such as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. This is kind of half encouragement and half admonishment. It's a reminder to trust in God, that we have security in the promises of God, a reminder to lean on the inheritance that is ours in Christ. And that's lovely at face value, but when we're confronted by the very real problems of this world, it doesn't feel like enough. My knee-jerk reaction To this passage used to be that, oh, don't worry. Yeah, cool. Just let me turn off that little switch in my brain that controls anxiety. Cool. Everything's great now. You know, that doesn't work that way. And when I mentioned this passage to a friend of mine, she said, oh, that's the God will provide one, right? Except, like, God's not a genie and the world sucks. I was like, well, (laughs) you're not wrong. (laughs) So, worry is a part of life, we will feel it. And we have good reason to, sometimes. Anxiety is sort of a a built-in alarm system. When it's working right, it alerts us to something that's gone wrong or an unmet need. And things do go wrong, needs go unmet. We see it every day. It's disheartening, demoralizing, dehumanizing. It makes us question if trusting God is worth it. But when I started thinking this way, I start to ask myself, so what's the alternative? You know, and this is a bit fatalistic maybe, but we are creatures. We don't have full control over our lives. We cannot, with any certainty, add even an hour to our time here. We are hardwired to trust. If we don't trust God, we will trust something. Money, power, reputation, other people, ourselves. We are hardwired for trust because we are not meant to do this alone. So, in this way, worry can lead us to put our trust in things that will fail us, things that sound like good options at first. In our society, we'd probably praise the man in the parable for being proactive, financially secure, wise, but God condemns his actions. And we see that he was controlled by a deep anxiety about his security. And it leads him to greed and isolation. And eventually, it leaves him with nothing. This is where the, the warning, the reprimand piece comes in. Do not be anxious. Trust what will not fail you. Anxiety, worry, I'm using this synonymously, is fundamentally self-protective. It is an important alarm system, but left unchecked, it can lead to crippling, self-absorbed stress. And hear me well, I am not saying that feeling anxious makes us selfish. Not true. I am saying that worry draws our attention to our own self and our own security or lack thereof. And it can lead us into self-serving habits, wanting more, doing more, because we're never sure we'll have enough. Again, we are not bad for worrying. It's how we decide to deal with the worry that matters. Do we let it consume us and direct our attention to ourselves? Do we conserve and hoard our resources? Or do we allow it to tell us what it needs to warn us of? and then practice relinquishing control. I don't know about you, but that second option sounds kind of nice, so how do we do that? It's no accident that this piece of the passage points us to nature. We are reminded to consider the ravens and the lilies, to meditate on the cycle of life, because it testifies to the ongoing action and provision of God in the world. And this is pretty good advice on a basic level, too. Going outside is regulating for our nervous systems. It quite literally can get us outside of our heads. So once we break that cycle of anxiety, the next step is to practice trust. Because it is something that we need to practice, not a switch we can flip in our hearts. So we listen to and remind ourselves of the promises of God. We spend time in prayer or with community or in nature in ways that light up our soul, relieve worry, draw us closer to God. And we take steps of faith, dismantling those self-protective, self-serving habits. We are told, do not be anxious, not so that we become happy-go-lucky, careless people, but so that we would care more for the right things, When we care less about ourselves and our own security, we are able to care better for others and the kingdom of God. And when we receive the abundance we were worried we wouldn't have, then we can see clearly who God is and what God has come to do. You know in the Hunger Games, the movies and the books, how the tributes in the arena get sent those little parachutes of things they desperately need? In the moment, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a good book, you should read it. This is sometimes the idea that we have about God. He's some anonymous benefactor sitting comfortably up in the clouds and watching us struggle, kind of entertained, intervening occasionally, sending things if we needed enough or pray really hard. But God is not like that. In the person of Jesus, he walks straight into the thick of the brokenness of this world. He is not removed from or naive about the state of the world we live in. Instead, he begins to fix it. Jesus takes on the pain, the anxiety, the suffering that we have inherited as people of the world and he shares his inheritance with us An inheritance of the kingdom that is coming. A kingdom of love, of justice, of peace, of power, of grace. And this is what scripture says of this inheritance that Jesus as the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn of the dead, Colossians one, is the appointed heir of all things, Hebrews one two, and he has brought us near to God by his blood, Ephesians two thirteen, and he has adopted us as children, Galatians four seven. And therefore we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, Romans eight seventeen, heirs to an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. First Peter 1 4. This inheritance is not just some spiritualized thing waiting for us in the clouds, but also it is a promise of real provision and protection in our lives on this earth. The last few verses of the passage say this: Do not be afraid, little flock for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Inheritance may be, a small and subtle piece of this passage in Luke, but it is a very loud truth in the New Testament. And it comes to us with responsibilities attached. In the context of God's plan revealed in Scripture, today's passage tells us this. Seek the kingdom of God and these things will be given to you. Receive the inheritance of God and let it transform you. Set your heart on treasure that is real and lasting. And then be rich towards God with what you have been given. Partner with God in the work of restoration and renewal and participate in this world productively, creatively, selflessly. As heirs of God, representatives of God, we are the ones that demonstrate his trustworthiness, that prove it to those around us that know us as Christians. We don't always do a great job but our righteous, generous, loving actions in God's name speak to God's character and God's kingdom. So here are some questions we should ask ourselves. Are there self-serving impulses in my life that are restricting me from representing God well, from loving others well? What am I hoarding for myself that is keeping me from participating in the kingdom? Is it money, possessions, other illusions of security? Is it a social circle, relationship, reputation? Is it a judgment against another that makes me feel safe, like I don't have to embrace them too as part of the kingdom? Heirs of God, receive the inheritance that God offers out of his endless riches. Hear the call that comes to you, right where you are, just as you are, standing in the crowd or at the feet of Jesus. Know that you have nothing to fear, for you are loved by the God who provides more than we can ask or imagine, the God whose kingdom is breaking through.